The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Everybody have a comfortable enough seat. Thought it would be good to begin the year as we often do here, reviewing the basic the basics of practice. And of course, the sitting meditation practice isn't really different than daily life practice. Sitting practice, in a way, is daily life practice with optimal conditions. We're in a relatively quiet place when we're formally meditating, right? You might come to common ground in a nice, uncluttered room, relatively quiet room, comfortable seat. So in that relatively protected environment, we practice what we try to do, what we try to practice all day long, which is connecting, being present, being in the moment, awake, alert, sensitive. And we practice being simple, not having having unnecessary tapes or unnecessary opinions, unnecessary reactive patterns distorting the mind. Now they may be there, but the mind is practicing not being confused with the experience. So we're connecting and not being confused by what what is, the way the moment is. So I want to talk about the practice in a way that might be easy to remember. We're dividing our daily sitting practice, our daily life practice into four categories and becoming quite competent, a master at each of these four. Spend a couple weeks doing this. The first thing that we need to do, and it's not a small thing, and it's easy to neglect or to sort of put aside as not being that important, that the first thing we have to do is we have to settle. Like we actually have to show up wherever your meditation cushion is, your meditation chair, or your local meditation center is, you actually have to get there. And this transition from our regular way of being in the world, generally, you know, our regular way of being in the world is reactive. We're pushing, we're pulling, we're trying to make something happen, trying to forget something that we've done that we wish we hadn't done. And when we take our seat on our meditation cushion or wherever we're taking our seat, it's a powerful trans transition. It's like we're owning or admitting to ourselves that it's okay to put down our defenses. It's okay to drop the fight or flight mechanisms, mechanism in the body and mind. You know, we're ready to punch or we're ready to run. In a way, we're stripping ourselves bare. 
there's a, a wonderful story that Jack Cornfield tells in one of his books. Uh, I think it's an ancient story from Europe. It's about a kind of the classic story of a young woman who's, for whatever reason, forced to marry a dragon. And uh, she's frightened, of course, by the prospect of marrying the fierce dragon. And uh, seeks out this old woman out in the woods who has a lot of wisdom. And the old woman tells her, no, this is what you have to do. On your wedding day, dress and put one dress over another dress so you have at least 10 or more layers. And then on your wedding night, when the dragon asks, asks you to take off your clothes, you say, I'll take off one piece of clothing for every set of scales you take off. And so then the evening comes, and uh, the dragon, the fierce beast, says, you know, take off your clothes. <laughs> she says, OK, I'll take off some of my clothes if you remove some of your scales. It wasn't easy for him to remove his scales, but he was interested. So <laughs> one by one, she took off a dress, and he took off a set of scales. You know how these stories go. He, he ends up being a handsome prince, but <laughs> the spiritual point <laughs> is that it may not be easy, but it's the right thing to do to put down <clears throat> all of our defenses, all of our tough exterior that we have. And so that's what that's what the meditation center, that's what our community can inspire us to do. And just the form of practice itself, you know, just the sitting down and being upright and relaxing, taking a few deep breaths. So we don't have to be a somebody. A lot of times we want to rush into our meditation practice, but we end up bringing a lot of baggage, you know, Whoever we are running around during our day, that person, those patterns, those mental patterns, they're not that useful in meditation practice. So it's important to have a little bit of a transition. You know, there's all kinds of stories in the Zen tradition. It's said that uh, you know, people would want to be admitted to the monastery, but the abbot would just let them sit outside the gate, sometimes for days before they'd be let in. So there's a, it's okay if it takes some time, like your way into your practice may be, you know, to take a bath, to do some mindful exercise, to lie down for a few minutes, and take one of those 10 minute naps, so that you've done what you've needed to do to let go of some stuff. That's why people generally, if it works in their schedule, like to meditate in the morning because we just have less baggage, we less set of scales we have to let go of. Not everybody's a morning person, of course, but you can consider that as you try to, in the new year, find a, a regular rhythm for your meditation practice. And if you have to practice at the end of the day, think about ways you can release 
some of what's being held, some, some of what, what's collected during the day before you actually get to your meditation chair, your meditation cushion. And then even while you're there, taking the time, think about your posture, think about where you're sitting. You might want to set aside a particular place in your home that helps with this transition. Like you really see this particular place as a distinct place in your apartment or your house where you do this particular activity. Then there's no confusion in the mind. This isn't the place where you balance your checkbook or you do this or you do that. This is the place where you show up and you let go. And you show up and you let go. That's why a lot of people say, oh, it's so much easier to practice at common ground than at home. Well, the place physically and energetically it supports the practice because so many of us have done the practice here and we've constructed this place to support it. But we can do some of that at home too in terms of where we practice, when we practice. Part of it is remembering we don't have to rush so just the idea of this first part of settling in, it's like we're rediscovering, I don't need to rush. I don't need to force, and I don't need to be afraid either. Like I don't need to avoid, avoid sitting and practicing. There's so many beautiful, wholesome qualities of mind we develop just by getting ourselves to the meditation practice, let alone doing it. That's why it said, even if you're not, you don't have a lot of time, it's quite useful to sit down and meditate, even for a few minutes. Just to be able to remember that we want to practice, we want to develop this practice, and to find enough wherewithal, enough intention, motivation to get ourselves there, that's a huge training for the mind. It's so easy to tell yourself, I'm too tired to practice. I don't really have the time to practice. You know how it is. It's just easy to come up with excuses. So this whole transition period, see this as a very beneficial practice. A practice, the settling, the coming into the practice, it's something to respect. Like we want to do it right. We want to learn how to do it right, to be skillful at making that transition. Because basically what we're doing in the formal transition is we're remembering that this is useful, this is wholesome, this is what needs to be cultivated for the mind. This is not to be forgotten or neglected. In the great scheme of things, this is the most easy thing to neglect and forget. It doesn't seem relevant to sit, to be still, to be in the moment. It doesn't. It seems relevant to worry and to plan and to struggle. That seems relevant. So that's the first part of practice. The art of coming to the cushion or to the chair or to your place. And so that, that whole transition is infused with wholesome states of mind, not neurotic states of mind. I really want to be a great meditator, better than that other guy. 
or, you know, I'm such a fool, I should have started meditating 10 years ago. I can't believe I've wasted all these years. So you get a sense of what we're setting in motion if that's what we're depending on to get us through our practice, how counterproductive that is. So once we're there, <clears throat> we've settled, we're developing this art of stopping, of relaxing, of shutting what's unnecessary, being a little bit more real, a little bit more raw, a little bit more that don't know mind, you know, a mind that isn't sure about anything, but just awake and present. Then out of that relatively undefended space, that space that isn't defended by all of our ideas about things, we take the time, this is the second part, we take the time to remember why we're doing this. So we're clarifying, of course, we needed some sense of that just to get to the meditation chair, cushion. But now in that place, in that seat, that relatively protected place, we just remember, as best we can at that time, we remember what's really important. And this doesn't take a lot of thinking. We're not talking about a lot of time here. It's just addressing the question, what's important? On my deathbed, or when I'm next to somebody I love deeply who's dying, what will have mattered? What can I do now that will have mattered then? You see? So we're trying to cut through a lot of the superficiality about what's important and get a sense of what really is important. And it's okay if you don't know, then know that you don't know. And it can be quite simple, like understanding this sense of wish, this uh, wish rather, to be free of weight, free of being burdened, being frightened by life. It may be somewhat theoretical, this aspiration to be free. You see, we, we almost have to try it out. Do I deserve to be happy? Do I actually deserve to be free? You have to like feel that wish and see if it feels authentic. I was listening, maybe some of you also caught Krista Tippett's show on public radio, um, On Being, now it's called. And she was interviewing a Muslim scholar and a Episcopal bishop and the Dalai Lama and a Jewish rabbi, I think. <coughs> Just this last week, <clears throat> you can, of course, get it online if you didn't catch it and you want to. And she was asking several of the people there about this passage from the Constitution of the United States. I believe it's in the Constitution or maybe the Declaration of Independence. You know, this right for the pursuit of happiness, liberty and happiness. I guess I should know exactly how it goes, but I don't. But you get the idea. I think you all know this. And Krista Tippett asked a couple of them in the Dalai Lama, what do you think about this idea of a right to be happy? And the Dalai Lama said, I really like it. 
it's important that this is not a small thing. Just like learning how to settle, learning how to let go of the world of responsibilities is not a small thing. It's also not a small thing to be able to remember that, in a sense, deeply, deeply wired into the mind is this intuition that there's this right to be happy, to be free. That it isn't, doesn't, we don't have to limit ourselves to just getting by. Like that's, that would be the height of human life. It's just to make it to the end. To get to the end, maybe with just a minimal number of scars and, you know, potholes that we've left behind. But to actually be happy in this life, as crazy, messed up as it is, as uncertain as it is. Do we have that right, or at least that right to imagine this possibility, to aspire to this possibility, to be deeply happy, deeply at ease, even with terrible things, beautiful things? So this is an important part of the spiritual life, and we make it part of our formal sitting practice every day. We don't want to neglect this part and go immediately to, you know, being with the breath. It is so easy for our meditative training just to become more neurotic activity. Sitting there, neurotically returning the attention to the breath. As if we're going to get somewhere. So much of the development of spiritual life depends on the attitude that we bring to our practice. So we want to start off with our deepest aspiration. We don't want to be shy or um, feeling like uh, we don't deserve this wish, this aspiration to be free, to be happy, to be at ease for the heart, mind to be fully released in life. We don't want to sort of choose second or third or fourth best. If we want to be happy, let's remember that. Yeah. This wish to be happy. And remember that this wish to be happy or free, it's about now. It's not like I wish to be happy later. I mean, maybe we do wish to be happy later, but don't we actually wish to be happy now, to be free, to be at ease now. And this is important that we don't put it out, because then it's idealistic, isn't it? It's like, theoretically, we wish to be happy, we think we deserve to be happy, theoretically, when, when I get my act together and stop getting sick or, you know, doing whatever we do in life. But how about now? Like, is there, is it possible, is it relevant to wish to be at ease, to be happy now? Like now, you know, being at Common Ground, hearing a talk. If we don't hold that possibility, we don't look. It's a famous, I don't know, Greek person said long ago, you know, what sought is found. If we don't seek for something, we don't find it. If we're actually interested in happiness now, then we need to know that so we look for happiness now. 
not theoretical happiness when we're a different person or whatever we might imagine. And I don't know if you're feeling it now, but the interesting thing is when we bring that aspiration to mind, it feels good. It feels good to be connected with the intuition that we have a right to be happy. We have a right to be free. We have a right to be fully alive. Now, we can imitate that and that can get really neurotic. We can strive to get there and that can get really neurotic. We don't want to get neurotic with this aspiration. It can be quite simple. We don't need to um, know what we're doing in order to know that we wish to be happy now. We don't have to be a master of the universe. Like we don't have to put on airs to be connected with this very simple but real aspiration to be happy. It, it flips our life from the tendency to be a victim of life, resigned, despairing maybe a little bit. Because when we're in that place, we really sell our life short. We're willing to you know, read Huffington Post over and over again, or watch stupid TV, or have inane conversations with people that don't need to be had. We're willing to do all these things because we don't feel we're not connected with this intuition that real happiness, real release is possible. So we're just willing to get by, taking up any insufficient distraction that happens that's close enough, you know, overeating. All the different ways where we get a little bit of sense, pleasure, but ultimately it's a little deadening to keep engaging in those activities. But when we have a sense of real happiness, the possibility of real happiness, real freedom, being really alive and connected and freely engaging life, without life having to be different than it is, so not needing a different body or a different mind or a different life situation, but fearlessly alive, happy to do the best we can in this life, then our orientation is very different. Is that really possible? Then we want to look. And then it really leads to the third part of practice, like, well, what would be one step toward this freedom? Like if we want to be peaceful, if we want to be free, if we want to be loving, if we want to be happy, what is one step in the direction of happiness, of love, of freedom? I mean, I can think of a lot of steps that aren't in that direction. So maybe the other way. <laughs> you know, if we know what's in the direction of being caught up, being tied up, constricted, hateful, then maybe we know, maybe we already know what one step is. See, then we can engage the training. That's really the third step. So these first two steps don't even sound so much like meditation practice. They're really setting up the third step, which is more like 
what we think of for a meditative training. But first we have to draw up the world to some degree. Then we have to remember what's important. Happiness now. <coughs> Peace now. Real love now. Freedom now. And then the, the actual training then is systematically taking steps now for that freedom. Well, you know, we have lots of instructions, so it's not even like we have to invent that particular training that we're going to do. But I think what's important is that we are able in our own mind to connect the meditative training with our aspiration. We really need that connection. Otherwise, the training will lose steam, will lose energy. It's the aspiration that gives energy to the practice. You need faith or aspiration to do the work. It clarifies what the work is, and it gives the work energy. It gives us energy to do the work. So if we want to be free now, loving now, at ease now, then that's what we practice. So like in the particular instructions I gave tonight, where they are in the body, aware of the body, sensations, aware of the breath moving in the body. And as we feel the movement of the breath coming in, we're just reminded that any happiness that's of any relevance has to be here, now. So then we practice connecting, right? Because if we're going to realize something, it has to be realized now. So we have to connect to now. So we remember that with the in-breath, connecting. You're connecting to what's predominant in your field of experience, or you're connecting to the actual sensations of breathing in. If nothing is strongly predominant, then just know the experience of breathing in. It's not important what you're connecting to. What's important is connecting to things as they are, whatever's predominant. Connecting, and then the releasing. We understand the releasing, like if we're really gonna be happy, really at ease, if we're really capable of full love, then we don't need to add anything. So the releasing is a demonstration that it's okay. Whatever we've connected to with the in-breath, with the out-breath, remember, it's okay. It's okay. You see how that releases the experience of love, of ease, of freedom. What makes the moment not free, hateful, uh, not easeful, is that instead of releasing, the mind is obsessing, it's getting fixed or caught up in various identities, various schemes, various agendas. So with the exhalation, we're practicing shedding everything. We just keep shedding until there's nothing left to shed. So then all we have is connection. And what's revealed in being fully connected without anything extra is that it's okay. It's hard to imagine that it can be actually this simple. It's simple, but it's not easy. 
It's amazing how disruptive our habit energy can be when the mind's identified with it. That's why we have to practice releasing or letting go over and over and over again. So there are many, like I said, many, many different techniques you can work with. This is just one scheme, one technique. Using the breath, breathing in, connecting, exhaling, releasing. So when there's nothing much happening, then just work with the actual experience of breathing. So breathing in, we're connecting with that. It's really mysterious how out of nowhere comes the in-breath. Just sort of arises like a force of nature, like a weather system rolling in. You know, there's the in-breath. Just happens, nobody doing it. In-breath happening. And we let that movement of nature, that, that seemingly act of pure creation, you know, the breath coming in, we just let it happen. We let it reveal itself. The mind knows the breath coming in. And in that profound simplicity, the releasing, the exhalation, is remembering we don't need to make up anything about that. We don't need to add anything to it. We don't need to claim it. We don't need to wish it were better or worry that it could be worse. With the releasing, we're realizing that nothing needs to be added to that simplicity, that raw, open simplicity. So the formal part of the technique of actually using the meditation words, connecting and releasing, and by the way, of course, you can change those words. You may have a different word for opening or connecting, like opening. Right? You could use opening with the in-breath instead of connecting. Just this you can use. Yes. Knowing is another word that can be used with the in-breath. And instead of releasing, there are lots of words. Peace. Letting be. So you can just find your own way, but the idea is essential. It's not really any way around it. If we're interested in being happy, then the actual training has to be connecting to this moment, because this is where we practice being happy, right? So we have to connect know the way that it is and then we have to practice letting go of any defense how amazing it is to discover that our endless striving our endless activity to be happy gets in the way of being happy that the way to realize a deeper more profound peace or happiness is to drop the activity of being happy. Because my activity of being happy is coming from a particular view, isn't it? There's a me, Mark, alone in the world, confused by the world, frightened by the world, who wants to be happy, so I do something to be happy. But that ha activity to be happy, coming out of that view, reinforces that view, which is very, very tight. The idea that I'm an unhappy human being is a tight place to live. So any activity to be happy coming out of that view 
that I'm an unhappy person who wants to be happy, it's just going to be more tightness. So if we're really interested in freedom, happiness, we have to do this exploration free of our preconceived ideas about how screwed we are, how difficult bad life is. We can't do this work from that view. Does that make sense? So the meditation training has to be some way of stepping out of that view. Most of the techniques have something to do with deeply, profoundly connecting and then not picking up anything from that place of connection, not adding anything. And then that's where the realization arises, the realization that it's okay, that it's okay from a resigned, helpless place. Like, it's really okay. It's always been okay. Life will always be okay. I don't need life to be different in order to be full of love and life and happiness. I don't need my life situation. I don't need you to be different. I don't need my mind states, the world to be different. Because that kind of happiness is pretty fragile. Like if our happiness depends on the world being sunny or people being nice or happy, that happiness is really fragile. Because the truth is, in the second stage, when we're reflecting on our aspiration, we want a happiness that's unconditioned. We don't want a happiness that's dependent on anything. Well, at least I don't. Do you? We want a happiness that can't be challenged by the different ways that things come and go in our lives. Now I'm sick, now I'm healthy, I was young, now I'm older. Now he loves me, she loves me, now he or she doesn't love me. I'm gainfully employed, I'm not gainfully employed anymore. I mean, there are amazing movements in our lives. The birth of a child, the death of a friend, a loved one. So is what we aspire to, to be thrown around by all these things that happen? No, we want to be really connected. We want to feel what it's like to be human, to feel the beauty, connect with the beauty, to connect with the difficulty. But not caught in a tight place because it's beautiful or because life is difficult. That's the optional part. And that's really what the training is about. Formally in our sit, all day long, we're practicing connecting with the way that it actually is, and we're practicing this natural shedding. Because shedding happens naturally. We're just letting it happen. We're just not picking it up again. So the releasing is more like we're recognizing that all of our defenses, all of our reactive patterns that we have, defensive patterns, they naturally fall away. I mean, speaking for myself, I've been defensive so many times in my life. If those defensive patterns hadn't fallen away, I would have died so long ago. Nobody could have survived that much defensiveness. So whatever neurotic patterns you tend to have, aren't they falling away all the time? Think about when you were embarrassed earlier today or angry, wanting to rip somebody out up. 
apart. You know, those states fall away all the time. Greedy states, needy states, aversive states. They're always falling away. That's what things do. They all just constantly are shedding. So when we repeat the word releasing with exhalation, we're just realizing that everything's falling away anyway. And we're letting it go away without needing it to pick up anything. So in Buddhism we call this, we're realizing the state of emptiness. Emptiness is not being disconnected. Emptiness is a profound state of connection with the releasing of self-centered states. The self-centered states are constantly shed and so things as they are are revealed because they're not being obscured by our self-centered neurotic states that we're identified with. Instead of being identified, we have two choices. We can identify with the neurotic patterns, the reactive patterns, or we can release them. We can let them take nature's way, which is just to go. They come, they go, they come, they go. But see, in that movement of coming and going, they don't obscure the mind. They don't confuse the mind. It's only when the mind gets identified, fixes on the neurotic patterns. I'm upset. I'm angry. I need this. Then that identification confuses the mind. And the mind gets tight. And then we think happiness is out there somewhere. And then we're screwed <laughs> for a while. Because our activity will be counterproductive, not in the direction of happiness. It will be reinforcing constricted states of mind and heart. And I'll just briefly mention the fourth, and then we can talk more about it next week. But the fourth way of practicing formally meditation and then informally all day long is once we're good at the settling, the dropping, right, the first stage, step, once we're good at remembering our deepest aspiration, once we're good at translating the aspiration into a training, a moment-to-moment training of connecting and letting go, then the fourth stage is developing a trust, like you don't have to do this work. But the work does itself, in a sense. Wisdom does its own work. Wisdom is the momentum in the mind to connect and let go, connect and let go. So then you'd say the fourth stage is all about trust. Trusting wisdom to do the work. Not a burden that you or I have to carry. Now you can't really go to the fourth stage until you realize that much confidence in the wisdom in the mind. Wisdom, as it turns out, isn't personal either. It's just what it is. It's just a force of nature doing its thing. And we can trust that. And in trusting wisdom, that impersonal force of wisdom to do its thing, we really can let go. We let go of the idea of being the practitioner, being the guy who's got to do it right. So I'll leave it here. Hopefully there's some comments or questions you have about the talk tonight. Anything that comes to mind that you'd like to share with the group? And if you do decide to speak up, say your name. My name is Anya. Um, I read an article recently in Shambhala Star Magazine, and it was an interview with Thich Nhat Hanh. 
and he was asked, um, what if sitting practice, what if formal sitting practice is difficult for you? What advice do you have for someone for whom sitting practice is difficult? And he said, well, just don't do it. And the interviewer found this to be a surprising answer, and I found this to be an unexpected answer. Um, and so he went on to elaborate. I mean, I, I guess his point was basically, um, if if sitting practice is something that just creates more struggle for you, then you shouldn't do it. And that sitting practice is something that is good when you can do it without struggling, and that it should be pleasant. And so his advice was just not to do it. <laughs> and so I'm wondering what what your thoughts are on that, and how how vital you think a formal sitting practice is for someone who is on this path, or can you be on this path of practice and maybe and, and practice in other ways or meditate in other ways rather than a formal sitting practice? Well, absolutely. But the question is, what's easy for you, for us? I think that's really the question. Like, how can we do it? How can we actually do this training? Because if we want to be free, we actually have to practice being free. Because our habits right now aren't very trustworthy. You know, our habits tend to whip up dramas all the time. And then we get lost in those dramas. So it's not enough to just follow the habits of the mind. I don't want to follow the habits of my mind. Or some of them I wouldn't mind following. But, you know, a lot of the habits of the mind we don't want to follow. So then it is hard work to um, resist habits of mind that aren't helpful and to develop habits of mind that are helpful. And sitting practice is just one way to do that, but we need ways to do that. One thing you have to understand about Thich Nhat Hanh is uh, the monasteries, the way that they practice at their monastery and you know when they're out in the world, there's a very powerful community quality to the way they practice. They're deeply embedded in a spiritual community. And in that spiritual community, there's all kinds of forms to support mindfulness practice that don't exist in most of our lives. So the fact of the matter is that mostly, whether we like it or not, we're spending time in environments where mindfulness, that radical presence and letting go, is not being supported. So for most of us, the only hope is we'll get this little sliver in the morning before we leave or when we come to Common Ground a couple times a week or you know here or there, where we don't have to be facing the strong current of the culture that's pushing us towards reactivity, and self-drama and, you know, unwholesome states of mind, greed and aversion and distraction. So the answer is yes, but I'd be interested in why the mind doesn't like sitting practice because, I, like I mentioned earlier, it's very easy for our neurotic habits to get into our meditation practice. And so it's not the meditation that's the problem, it's that it's become about, it's, it's all about striving. It's all about reinforcing the idea that I'm not good enough. You know, I know I can't do this practice. So we sit and we prove to ourselves that we can't do this practice. <coughs> and then we end, 
in the sit and we remind ourselves, yeah, I knew I couldn't do this. <laughs> that would be such an unpleasant thing to do day after day. And, and to some degree we do these, we have this kind of relationship with our sitting practice and it, I think it is unpleasant. So we, we might need to change our relationship to our practice. And taking a break may be the way to do it. We're just being really honest about what we're doing. Like remembering our aspiration and making sure that the actual practice comes right out of the aspiration to be happy, to be free. Because then if it's not leading to happiness and freedom, it should stand out. I'm just getting tight. Could the practice of getting tight lead to happiness? No. So let me try something else. And there's a sense of independence, like, like it or not, we're, we're responsible for doing something that actually works. I mean, we go to our teachers, we go to our books or retreats or whatever, and we ask questions, we listen, but ultimately we're all alone when we're practicing, whether you're in a group or by yourself, ultimately you're alone. And only we can know what we're doing. Because you can look beautiful and be cultivating unwholesome states of mind. People will look at you and think you're so serene or, you know, doing deep work, but you could be planning, you know, the best way to make pizza or something. <laughs> Other thoughts people have? Yeah. My name is Troy. And uh, you talked in the, the first two stages about getting settled, and uh, I sometimes struggle with that. So in the last week or two, um, I had a job offer on the table, and um, I, I won't get into all the all the details, but it was a little bit more complicated than just a job offer, and my mind was just really shaken up with this. But it could be anything. It could be a diagnosis. It could be a diagnosis of a friend. But if you have something major that's going on that you just can't put it down, how do you punch through that? Yeah. Well, generally the answer to all those questions is, if there's a problem, it's because the understanding isn't complete enough. So that's what I'd look at. I'd look at my view my understanding of the, the particular situation. Not too much the understanding of the job situation, but my understanding like how of what I should be doing right now. There's a great line, again, that the Dalai Lama often repeats from a famous Buddhist monk, Shantideva, who lived uh, a while back. And uh, yeah, in one of his famous discourses or writings, Shantideva says something like, <coughs> whenever you're faced with some difficulty in life, if there's something you can do about it, well then do it. And if there isn't anything you can do about it, well then there's nothing you can do about it. But in either case, there's no need to worry. So that's, we have to, I know that sounds a little clever, but there's something deeply wise about that. It's like, so when we're sitting down, when we get to our meditation cushion, it's like we should be able to say, in my day-to-day, -day, the things that I had to do, to whatever degree I had to do them, I did them, you know? And if I didn't do them, well then maybe that's what we should do. 
So when, when we do have the time to sit down, it's because we've decided that all of those life-threatening things that need to be done have been done. And that there is this half an hour, this 45 minutes, this 60 minutes, where I don't need to address those duties. I have confidence. It doesn't mean I have everything done on my to-do list. It just means that in the great scheme of things, this is more important than doing things. So that we have confidence that it's really okay that done is what needs to have been done. Everything else is going to be done at another time. Now this is what's happening. And it's really about respecting long-term versus short-term, because most of the things that are to-do lists are short-term activities. You know, just getting through the day, getting through the week, dealing with this particular problem, you know, that's front and center. But like I said, again, it's just a, a trick to take the long-term view, but on our deathbed, what's going to have that important? We want to be doing that work now. How can we have the wisdom? Like I was visiting um, a friend who has very serious brain cancer on uh, Monday. They're not you know, beyond the place where they can treat it. And uh, good friends of ours, you know, as we were driving out there, they live in by River Falls. <coughs> I was thinking, oh God, what am I going to say to this guy? You know, how can I be useful? You know, and this is, the whole point of our practice is that we have a way of being, not so much a what to say, but we have a way of being in those moments when we're in real need or somebody else is in need. <clears throat> we have a way of being that's actually going to be supportive and not harmful. So instead of going and being afraid, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of death. We don't need to be attached to beauty. That's when we're really useful. So that's the kind of thing I would reflect on. Like doing this practice is my way of addressing what really needs addressing. Because there's always one thing after another. There's always dramatic things that, I mean, maybe some things are bigger than other things. But there's always things. It's never not that way. I mean, we could drive, basically, we just distract ourselves from time to time. So this long-term work, we have to make room for. And we can't justify all of the little or not so little tragedies to keep us from this work. We're not responsible for solving all of the, our problems or other people's problems. What we're responsible for is understanding the possibility of real happiness. Because ultimately, that's what's of real value. A lot of people justify racing around uh, in terms of being compassionate, you know, taking care of people. But what we're actually reinforcing is the racing around, the being disconnected. People get involved in social change with hatred. I mean, how counterproductive is that? Hating the people that are oppressing us. That's what they do. They're hating us by, you know, thinking we don't matter. You know, we're the 99%. We don't matter or something like that. So we hate the 1%. I mean, that's when, you, when we think about it, it's just as crazy, this justification of unwholesome states of mind. 
So the formal practice is when we're saying, enough already. For this period of time, I'm practicing not engaging in unwholesome states. You know, only love need apply. Only sensitivity and openness need apply. Only letting go need apply. That's all that we're going to be working with now. And every time the mind gets caught in greed or hatred or aversion or fear or distraction, we just re-remember our aspiration to be happy, re-remember the training of connecting and letting go, shedding, shedding, shedding. It's really powerful during those intense times to realize, like, because the relief is so much more obvious. Like, if you can really break through the mind's addiction to the drama and really let go a little bit, the contrast between being really tightly bound up in that drama and touching real simplicity, it will be more marked and you'll get more confidence from having dropped the drama. We have to leave it here. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Maybe take a deep breath or two. deep aspiration, fearless loving, fearless opening, fearless responsivity to the world, real peace and ease. So may our life, our practice, set in motion the causes and conditions for real happiness and peace. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.